like you to take a Bible this afternoon, let's open it together to 1 Samuel chapter 31, the very last chapter in the book of 1 Samuel. We're continuing in our ongoing study of the great man of God, David's life. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, how about borrowing the copy of the Bible we have for you right on the back of the seat there in front of you? It's going to be on page 214 of our copy of the Bible, page 214 of our copy, 1 Samuel 31 in your copy. Uh, you know, in his prize-winning biography of Abraham Lincoln, Carl Sandburg closes the saga of Lincoln's life with the following proverb. In fact, it happened to be one of Lincoln's favorite proverbs on a personal level as well. And it goes like this. It says, a tree can be best measured when it's down. And certainly that was true of Lincoln. It was only after Lincoln was down, the victim of an assassin's bullet, that people began to realize the measure of this man's greatness. But you know, it applies to what we want to talk about today. I believe that studying the lives of great men and women who've gone before us is a discipline that can bear enormous fruit. I mean, as we study their successes, we can learn a lot about how to achieve success in our modern lives. As we study their, their failures, we can learn a lot about how to make better choices and set better boundaries and exercise better wisdom so that we don't repeat the mistakes that they made. As, as we study their character, both the strengths of their character and the weaknesses of their character, we can learn how to be people of better character in our world. And so I think that smart people are people who are students of the folks who have gone on before them. Now, in that regard, I would like us to be a student today of the man Saul, whose life we've just come to an end describing here in 1 Samuel 31. Saul has just died. And now that the tree is down, I want us to pause for a minute before we go on talking about David now assuming the kingship. And let's measure this man's life now that he's down. And let's see what lessons we can draw from the way this man lived, from his walk with God, that will help us be a lot more successful in our walk for God, with God here in the modern world. So, this is what we want to do today. And a little bit of background. Remember, there was a big battle between the Philistines and the army of Israel under Saul. As I said, Saul was killed. Three of his four sons were killed. The army of Israel was put into total retreat. And as we pick up the story, of course, uh, what we're going to find is that as Saul now is dead, there's some lessons for us in the way he lived. Okay, let's pick it up. Look at verse 7. What kind of situation did Saul leave Israel in when he died? What was the status of affairs? Verse 7. It says, And when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and they fled. And the Philistines came and occupied these Israelite towns. When the people around Mount Gilboa, where the battle took place, heard that the army of Israel had run away, they realized that there was nobody left to protect them, so they ran away too. And, the, and like hermit crabs, the Philistines, the Bible says, moved into their villages, took over their houses and their lands, and just began living in their villages. Now, friends, this was an incredibly serious situation that we have here. Mount Gilboa, where this battle was, is way up in the north of Israel. All the way inland, right near the Sea of Galilee, if you know anything about the geography of Israel. And so here in the very heartland of Israel, we have the Philistines not just having won a battle, but we have the Philistines settling into cities and setting up living conditions here in the heartland of Israel, taking over the territory and making it their own. 
And just to show you that indeed we really did have a dire state of affairs here, let me show you something else the Bible says that confirms this. Flip over a page to 2 Samuel chapter 2. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, we're told that one of Saul's sons, his surviving son, a fellow named Ishbosheth, uh, decided to challenge David for the throne of Israel, and there was a civil war. Well, when Ishbosheth set up his capital, his kingdom, I want you to see where he set his capital up. Look at verse 8. It says, Meanwhile, Abner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And there he made him king. That's where they set up his capital city. Do you know where Mahanaim is? You go, Lon, come on. We can't even say it. What do you mean, do we know where it is? No, well, let me tell you where it is. It's on the east side of the Jordan River. It's not even in Israel proper. It's in the country that today is the country of Jordan. It wasn't even in the land that Saul was controlling. And so what we learn from this is just a tiny little insight, but it tells us the Philistines had made such a deep incursion into the land of Israel, and they had taken over so much territory that when Ishbosheth went to set up a capital, he had to actually go out of Israel over into Jordan to set up his capital because they controlled so little of Israel anymore. It wasn't safe to set his capital up in the land that was properly Israel. I mean, this would be like the Soviets making an incursion in the United States that forced us to move our capital from Washington, D.C., somewhere into the heartland of America, you know, like Dallas or something. (laughs) God help us. Um, God help us if we had to go to Dallas. By the way, do you know, do you know what you say to a Dallas cowboy in a three-piece suit? You say, will the defendant please rise? Ha <laughs> Do you like that? I love that. Oh, we're just having some fun. I mean, lighten up. We're just having some fun here. Couldn't let that moment go by. But the point is, the point is that, that Israel was in deep matzo balls. Things were not good in Israel. Israel was hanging on by a thread at this point, militarily. And this was the situation, the state of affairs that Saul left behind when he died. You know, he had ascended the throne 40 years before with tremendous promise. The Bible says that he was a man of great stature and physical. He was a physical specimen. He was a head and shoulders above every man in Israel, the Bible said. He began with God's promise of certain blessing if he would only obey God. In his first military exploit, he, he, uh, he won a resounding victory. A few years later, he watched as his men put the mighty Philistine army to flight after David had killed Goliath. And for a moment, for just a moment in time, it actually looked like Saul was going to unify all of Israel and was going to establish Israel as the premier power in the ancient Near East for just a moment. But he blew it. He blew it. He squandered all of that promise. He squandered all of that potential. And when he died, he left Israel in worse shape than when he found it. Israel was less unified, less secure, less powerful, and controlled less of its own land when Saul died 40 years later than when he came to the throne 40 years before. He was a disaster. His life ended awful. And to think that he started with such tremendous possibilities, it's tragic to see a man's life end having squandered it as badly as as Saul squandered his life. Now, that's the end of that, but we want to stop now and ask the most important question. And you know what it is. So, everybody ready? One, two, three. 
Wonderful. That was wonderful. Best of the day. I'm proud of you. Now, you know, uh, you may say, Lon, you know, this is history. Lon, this doesn't have, doesn't have one bit of, not one thing to do with us today. Well, I believe it does. I believe there's some lessons in Saul's life that have enormous impact for you and me. I don't know if you follow Major League Baseball at all. But if you do, you know that, that a Big Mac is not just a sandwich anymore. A Big Mac actually is the nickname of a six foot five, 245 pound slugger for the St. Louis Cardinals, whose real name is Mark McGuire. Now, Mark McGuire has had quite a beginning to this baseball season. At the end of the first week of June, one third of the way into the season, he has 28 home runs already. We all know the record is 61 home runs by Roger Maris in 1961. But in an article in USA Today this past week, USA Today said that at his present rate, McGuire will hit 82 home runs in 1998. 82. Well, they asked McGuire in the article what he thought about all of this. Here's what he said. He said, you know, it would be great to break the record. But there's still four months left in the season. So I can't sit around and just think about it. It doesn't matter where I am right now. It matters where I am at the end of the season. And I read that and I thought, this is a wise young man. See, he understands something very important. He understands that lots of people start a race well, but that the real measure of success is not how you start a race. It's how you Finish your race. Nobody is going to give McGuire a trophy in the first week of June for having 28 home runs. But if he really gets to 82 at the end of the season, then they'll give him something. It doesn't matter how you're doing at the beginning or even in the middle. What matters is how you end. And you know, that brings us to Saul. Here was a man who started the race with tremendous potential. But he squandered it and he ended the race awful, awful. And Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For everything that God recorded in the Bible was written to teach us something, was written for our instruction. The reason that God went to the trouble here in the Bible to record so much of Saul's life was because there are lessons in Saul's life for us. And as I look at it, there were three mistakes that Saul made, three terrible mistakes he made that were responsible for his spiritual demise, that were responsible for him squandering his life and ending as poorly as he did. And so I want to take the time we have left to point out to you the three mistakes I believe Saul made, because these are three mistakes God does not want you to make and he does not want me to make. So let's look at them. Mistake number one is that Saul took obedience to God lightly. He took it lightly. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel 15, just a few pages back. Turn back 1 Samuel 15. This is not the only place in the, in the record of Saul's life where we see him taking obedience to God lightly. But it's one of the more poignant. 1 Samuel 15, and look at verse 2. 1 Samuel 15, verse 2. Samuel comes to Saul and he says, Saul, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. You say, Lon, this is horrible. How could a loving God send somebody on a mission of genocide like this? 
Well, now wait a minute. Before you make that judgment against God, make sure you've got all the facts. If you need some more facts, you should go back to Exodus 17, because there in Exodus 17, you'll find out why God sent Saul on this mission. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were free, yes, but they were also a mob. They were completely disorganized. They were a rabble as they moved through Sinai. They were spread all over everywhere. And the Amalekites, you'll read in that chapter, would come and prey on the stragglers, on the weak, on the sick, on the elderly, on the young. And like a bunch of merciless hyenas, they would take advantage and kill and, and rob these people who were straggling. And God, right there in that chapter, pronounced judgment on the Amalekites for doing this. And he said, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth for doing this. Now, he didn't do it then. But he's ready to do it now. It was a delayed judgment and the task of fulfilling it now falls on Saul. God didn't just say, oh, I feel like wiping out a tribe today. What tribe shall I wipe out? No, 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 no. God doesn't do that. These people had earned every bit of judgment that they got. And now it was time to carry it out. And so Saul went. Verse 8. How did he go? Look what it says in verse 8. It says in verse 8. Then he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Didn't kill him. God didn't say that. God said, kill him. Well, Saul didn't do it. And not only that, but he, uh, he also, verse 9, the army spared not only Agag, but the best of the sheep, the best of the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, those they destroyed. They didn't do what, what God told them to do. Saul's problem was he didn't understand the meaning of the word obedience. He thought that good intentions qualify as obedience. They don't. He thought that partial compliance qualifies as obedience. It doesn't. He thought that because he had a spiritual sounding reason for disobeying orders, that that was okay. He's going to say in a moment, well, the reason we didn't kill the cattle and everything like you told us, God, is because we saved them to sacrifice to you. And he thought because of that spiritual sounding reason, it was okay to disobey God. It isn't. He didn't understand obedience. You know, my son is just getting ready to start his senior year at the Naval Academy. And I have watched as the military has taught my son the meaning of the word obedience. It's been a wonderful thing to watch. I thought I did a good job, but these people do it better. Because military people understand the meaning of this word. They understand that half obedience is no obedience, that you cannot half charge a hill, you cannot half launch a missile, you cannot half fire a torpedo. It's all or nothing. You either obey or you don't obey, but there's nothing in between. Saul didn't understand that. He gave God half obedience, which as far as God was concerned was disobedience. And let me show you how God felt about it. Look at verse 22. It says in verse 22, Samuel speaking says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he delights in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than to sacrifice. Man, I don't know how God could say it any plainer than that, do you? Pretty plain to me. Above everything else, first and foremost, God is looking for people who are serious about obeying him. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 22, James writes, Do not merely listen to God's word and so deceive yourself, rather do what it says. Jesus said, John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will go to church? No. You will sing in the choir? No. 
If you love me, you will put some money in the offering plate. No, that isn't what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, you will obey what I tell you to do. And you know the wonderful story that Jesus told about the, the man, the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand? I used to sing that with my children when they were younger. You know, the wise man built his house upon the... Boy, that is lame. That's all I got to Let's try it again. The wise man built his house upon the... Very good. All right. And the winds blew in the winds. And, and you know how the end goes? And the house on the rock stood... Firm. Right. And the house on the sand went, and we'd all fall down and roll around. And we had a blast doing that song together. For years, I thought the difference between the guy building on the rock and the guy building on the sand was that the guy building on the rock was a Christian, and the guy building on the sand was not a Christian. Then one day I happened to read the passage carefully. And I discovered that's not the difference at all. Jesus said that the person who builds their house on the rock is the person, listen, who hears my word and does it. And the person building on the sand is the person who hears my word, Christian or not, and doesn't do it. The difference has nothing to do with whether you're Christian. The difference has to do with whether or not we obey God. And friends, I believe that no matter how big or small the issue may be in life, if you want to end your life well, then you need to take obedience to God seriously. Not lightly, seriously. When God tells you how to run your sex life, you need to take that seriously. When God tells you that when you offend someone, you need to humble yourself and go ask for forgiveness, you need to take that seriously and do it. When God tells you to go a certain place or do a certain thing or act a certain way, we need to take that seriously and we need to do it. And we don't need to do it halfway. We need to do it exactly the way God tells us to do it. When God tells us about the language we should use or the jokes we should listen to or tell at work, we need to take that seriously and we need to obey Him. When God tells us that we should stay true to our marriage vows, we need to take that seriously and we need to seek to obey Him. When God tells us that we need to seek to raise our children in the nurture and the discipline of the Lord, we need to take that seriously and expend the energy that it takes to carry out that, uh, that, that command from God. You say, but Lon, no one can obey God perfectly. I mean, everybody messes up. You're right. You're right. And I've got some good news for you. In order for God to bless your life and use your life, you don't have to obey God perfectly, but that was not Saul's problem. Saul's problem was not that he couldn't obey God perfectly. Saul's problem was he didn't have a seriousness about it. He wasn't even worried about it. He wasn't even trying hard. He didn't even care that much. It was not a major issue with him. And that was the problem. Of course you and I aren't going to do it perfectly. But God wants it to be a serious issue that we're giving it everything we've got, trying as hard as we know how, that we're zealous about it. Second mistake Saul made is that he failed to accept personal responsibility for his wrongdoing. When he did wrong, he shifted the blame. Watch him do this. Look at verse 15. Samuel confronts him and look what he says. Saul answered, verse 15, and said, The soldiers brought these animals from the Amalekites. They were the ones who spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. I mean, he says to Samuel, Samuel, what are you, what are you talking to me for? What are you in my face for? What are you giving me a hard way to go for? Why are you bothering me? I didn't do this. 
The soldiers did this. Well, it's not my problem. You, you expect me to control everybody and everything? I, it's not my fault. Well, aren't you the commander of the army? Yeah, but it's not my fault. And Samuel even gave him a second chance to get this right. He exhorted him a little bit more and gave him a second chance to, to get it right. And look at verse 21. He gets it wrong the second time. Saul says the second time, verse 21, the soldiers were the ones who took the sheep and the cattle. They were the ones who did it, not me. Friends, refusing to accept personal responsibility when we do wrong is a sure formula for disaster in life. You say, well, why is this so serious? Well, let me tell you why. Listen to Proverbs 28, 13. You don't need to turn there. Proverbs 28, verse 13. It says this. He who conceals his wrongdoing will not prosper. But the person who confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy. Why is refusing to accept personal responsibility so serious? Because a person who refuses to accept personal responsibility cannot confess wrongdoing from the heart. And when you cannot confess wrongdoing from the heart, the Bible tells us we cannot access the mercy and the forgiveness of God unless we do. If you want God to be the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance for you, that's wonderful, and He will be, but you've got to meet the condition. And the condition is we confess our wrongdoing, and we seek the forgiveness of God, and with the help of God, we try to get up and forsake it and not repeat it. And we're serious about it. And no matter how many times we fall as Christians, following that formula, God will always be the God of the second chance for us. But when we refuse to accept personal responsibility, when we say, it's not my fault, what are you mad at me for? I didn't do it. Well, there's no verse in the Bible that says you can say that and access the mercy of God. Remember the story Jesus told about the rabbi and the tax collector who came in the temple to pray? And the rabbi was like, I'm this and I'm that and I'm this and I'm that and I'm so wonderful. I don't do anything wrong. Nothing's my fault. And then there was a tax collector who beat on his breast. you remember? And what did he say? He said, oh God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. Jesus said... You know which one of those two guys went home forgiven? was the tax collector. He took responsibility for his sin. He confessed it to God. He was forgiven, not the rabbi. And compare Saul's attitude to David's after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Listen to David's attitude. Psalm 38. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear, David says. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and all day long I groan in anguish of heart. This is a guy who's accepted responsibility for what he did. This is a guy who is broken hearted about his disobedience. And friends, that is why God treated David with the mercy that he did and why he treated Saul with the harshness that he did. You know, one of the things we've tried to teach our boys is how to accept personal responsibility. And, you know, this is a process. I mean, we are working on this. I have one son in particular who has a struggle with this. Never his fault. You know, it's, it's his brother's fault, his sister's fault, it's the bus driver's fault, it's the teacher's fault, it's the neighbor's fault. Sometime when I've been at work all day and come home to confront him, he tells me it's my fault. I say, how can it be my fault? I wasn't even here. It's your fault. So we often spend significant amounts of time working this through. 
Because we never stop until he's willing to say, oh no, it was my fault. See, we have to get him to the place where he understands it's not anybody's fault but his. Why? Because he can't be reconciled with God till he accepts personal responsibility. And he can't be reconciled with me until he accepts personal responsibility. And he needs to understand that. I'm not interested in giving excuses. I'm interested in having you look me in the face and say, I did it. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Now we can do business. We can do business now. But we can't do business with, what do you mind? It's not my fault. I didn't do it. Whatever. No, I can't do business like that. Mm-mm. And you know what? You can't do business with God like that either. May I say to you, if you're here and you're not sure exactly how you're getting into heaven, but you think you're trying to get in by working real hard, and if you obey God enough that you can get in, may I say to you, the Bible says that you, nobody gets in like that. You can't get in by obeying God. You can't obey God enough, and neither can I, to work our way in. That's why Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins so that we had access to the mercy of God through what Jesus did for us on the cross. But you know, friends, what we're saying here applies because you can't go, neither can I, and access the mercy of God at the cross unless you're willing to accept personal responsibility. Can you imagine going and saying, well, Jesus, you know, I appreciate you dying on the cross for my sin, even though I really hadn't done anything wrong and you really didn't need to. But if you wanted to do that for me, that's perfectly okay. I'll accept it. No, that doesn't work, folks. It only works when we go and we say, Lord, I am a sinner. I have broken the laws of God. I deserve whatever judgment I get. Thank you for, in your mercy, taking that judgment for me. I accept my personal responsibility. And thank you now for the mercy you're going to give me. Something to think about. If you're not sure how to get into heaven, God's made a way. But you can't access it unless you're willing to accept personal responsibility. Saul wouldn't. That's why he self-destructed the way he did. Third mistake, and finally, is that Saul was more interested in looking right in front of people than he was interested in being right in front of God. He was more interested in looking right in front of people than he was interested in being right with a holy God. Watch this happen. 1 Samuel 15 again, look at verse 27. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught a hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Saul, uh, Samuel's robe did. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, just like you've torn my robe, and he has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Now, wouldn't you think, if you were Saul... And Samuel said to you, you're not going to be king anymore. God has torn the kingdom out of your hand. God is taking it away from you. You have upset God so badly. You have disappointed God so badly. You have angered God so badly that you can't be king anymore. Wouldn't you think that that, that he would be heartbroken? He would be grief stricken. He would fall on his knees and say, Samuel, help me get reconciled to God. Help me be right with God. You know, maybe there's a way we can turn this around if I really, before God, make this right. Wouldn't you think that's what he would have done? What did he do? Look at verse 30. And Saul replied, okay, so I've sinned. I've sinned. Okay, okay, you you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel come back with me. You see, the problem was Samuel was going to leave. He wasn't going to go back to the army, to the, to the people rather here. And he was going to walk away. And then Saul was going to have to answer the question, where'd Samuel go? 
Why isn't Samuel here? Why isn't he rejoicing with us over this great victory we had? And Saul was going to have to tell him, well, Samuel thinks, you know, I mean, Samuel's not real happy. He said, I can't be king anymore. Saul didn't want to face that. So here, instead of saying, hey, what I really care about is being right with God. Will you help me, Samuel? I need to get right with God. He said, yeah, okay, so I sinned. Okay, big deal. But what I'm really worried about, Samuel, is that you come back with me and we be together and we stand up in front of the people so that I don't look dumb and I don't look stupid and I don't lose face and my reputation doesn't suffer. Saul's priority was style and profile, smoke and mirrors, spin and win. That's what he was mostly concerned about. Not truth in the inner parts. Not authenticity. Not being reconciled with a holy God whom he had offended. That was the problem. He shouldn't have cared what the people thought. He should have been caring at this moment what God thought. That was not his highest concern. He was much more concerned about saving face. He'd have fit right in in this town, wouldn't he? He'd have felt right at home here in Washington, wouldn't he? But you see, my friends, what God wants us to learn from Saul's bad example is that the number one concern in our life, in every situation, every day, wherever we go, is not how are we looking in the eyes of people. That is not our number one concern, and it should not be our number one concern. But our number one concern should be in every situation, wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we think, whatever we say, how is this looking in the eyes of a holy God? That's the key issue. Because it doesn't really matter what people think. But it sure does matter what a holy God who's running the universe thinks. In talking to my sons, I'd like to conclude by just telling you this. In talking to my sons, one of the things we kind of, we've tried to constantly impress upon them is how important it is <clears throat> to finish the race well. I'm always saying to my boys, you know, guys, they don't give out gold medals at the start of the race. Have you ever noticed that? They don't, they don't walk down the starting block and go, here's a gold for you, here's a gold for you. Silver for you, here's a gold for you. Thanks for showing up. You look wonderful today. If you feel like running, great. Have you ever seen him do that? No, of course not. It's not how you start something that counts, I try to tell my boys. It's how you finish. They give gold medals at the end because it's the people who make it to the end who have demonstrated they have the depth and the quality of character to finish the race. I have one son in particular who thinks that if he comes into the starting blocks and he adjusts his trunks just right and he gets down just right in starting position and he's got the right kind of tennis shoes on and the right kind of shirt on and he takes the first three steps, well, that he deserves a medal. I have to say to him, it's wonderful that you got those grades first quarter. But son, there are three quarters left plus finals. We're not done yet. I'm not giving you any awards for one quarter. Finish the year and we'll talk about it. Well, we're, we're working on it. We're learning. It's slow, but we're learning. But you see, my friends, God is not interested in giving us medals when we start. He wants us to finish the race well. Like the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4. I have finished the course. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. And now, Paul says, now that I've finished, there's a gold medal laid up for me in heaven that the Lord will give me when I get there. You know, nothing would give God more happiness than to give every single one of you here a gold medal when you get to heaven. That would make him thrilled. 
But gold medals are only given at the end, folks. We've got to finish well. And if you want to finish the race well, let me tell you what to do. Do not make the mistakes that Saul made. Number one, do not take obedience to God lightly. This is not a light issue with God. This is a serious issue with God. And if we're going to end the race well, we need to be zealous and serious about seeking to obey God in every area of our life. Number two, if you want to end the race well, do not fail to accept personal responsibility. Learn to step up to the plate and say, I did it. I was wrong. It was my fault. It was nobody else's fault. I am completely responsible. I am completely to blame. Now, God, will you show me mercy? And you know what? You'll always get mercy from God. Principle number three, if you want to end the race well, be careful that you're not more interested in looking right before people than you are in being right with God. The key issue is not what people think. It's am I pleasing to God at this moment in my life, doing what I'm doing, saying what I'm saying, thinking what I'm thinking, going where I'm going. Is this pleasing to God? That's the key issue. People, they take care of themselves. Besides, folks, people aren't the ones who hand out the gold medals. Right? God does. It's much more important how he feels than how they feel. Well, my prayer for all of us here is that we'll make the changes in our life and we'll instill the principles in our life so that we can end the race well. Remember, we may be in June right now and you may be doing real well, but they don't give trophies in June. They give them in October. And my prayer is when you get to October that God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now here's your medal. May God help that to be true of all of us. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you for reminding us today that finishing well is what this is all about. That it's about showing the depth of character and the depth of commitment that it takes to finish this race. And Lord, you know we're imperfect. You know we struggle. You know how frail we are. Thank you for the Spirit of God living inside of us that gives us the resources we need to even have a chance of finishing well. And yet, Lord, there are many Christians who haven't because they've made poor choices and set poor boundaries. And so thank you for talking to us today about some good choices we can make and some good boundaries we can set that will help ensure that we end the race well. Lord, use what we've talked here today about here today, I pray, to change our lives to keep us from stepping on the alligators, to keep us from ending up like Saul ended up, squandering his life and all of the talent and possibilities you gave him. God, may we end like Paul. May we finish the race. May we complete the course. May we keep the faith. And may we hear you one day say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Change our lives, Father, if they need to be, so that we can see that happen. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.